0: Hello friends and welcome to Impact Everywhere, the podcast that looks for people having a positive impact in unexpected places. Today we have Ilana Ben-Ari, the co-founder and CEO of 21 Toys. Ilana and I actually have a crazy meeting story and even though we've only known each other for about three months, we met Physically like 10 years ago when she was renting out a space living with a bunch of circus artists And I had gone there to do a photo shoot and she had even taken a picture of me And we have a mutual friend who happened to be her current roommate that I met at a conference And when I went back to her place just to say hello and meet her cool roommates, it turns out Ilana was one of them Anyways, I'm really excited about today's conversation because it tackles a really interesting topic, and that is the topic of empathy. Because although everyone knows that empathy is important and that the world needs empathy to survive, there are very few people that dedicate their lives to creating tools for people to generate more of it. And Ilana is one of those people. Ilana is a product designer and inventor turned social entrepreneur who has since developed a very successful toy company that creates development tools for anyone between the ages of six and CEO, so basically any age, to develop tools like empathy, resilience, and creativity. Her stuff has been featured basically everywhere on Yahoo, Quartz, Huffington Post, Time, and they have clients all over the world with some of the biggest banks and the biggest tech companies. So you know, it's pretty legit. The reason I wanted her on this podcast was to talk about why empathy is something important, what the process was in developing something as abstract as an empathy toy, or even her latest failure toy, and how she goes about measuring success for the increase of something as abstract as empathy. And while some of you guys might be wondering, well, what does empathy have to do with impact anyways? I actually think empathy is something the entire world needs a little bit more of. After all, how do we come to compromises if nobody is sitting down to have a conversation with one another, even if you're coming at it from opposing viewpoints? Anyways, without further ado, this is Alana Ben-Ari, and here she is talking about how her empathy toy actually works.
1: The way that the empathy toy works is it's an abstract wooden puzzle that you play blindfolded. So if you and I were playing, you would have a set of these seven abstract puzzle pieces And I would have the identical set of pieces. Someone or yourself uh, would give you one of a hundred patterns. You'd have to describe that so that I can recreate it. And because we're both blindfolded, we have only our words to describe this very complex abstract shape. So in the span of five to 15 minutes, we both end up with pretty huge insights into how we individually deal with patience, frustration, but more importantly, how do we creatively communicate? So whether you're six years old and playing it, whether you're a group of two or 200, there's over 52 different ways that you can change the dynamics of the gameplay. But at the end of the day, that 15-minute activity is a reflection of that group dynamic that you can then discuss. How does that relate to a real-life scenario? Each time that it's played, it can bring out different elements of your personality, or group dynamic. And so just like people, we are the variable. I know who I am, but I have different behaviors and instincts and things going on. I can change throughout the day and throughout the week. And so the toy is consistent. It has variations on gameplay, but the toy doesn't change. I change and you change. That's really where the, the opportunities for reflection and exercising that muscle, that's where you can start to see more long-lasting impacts. Game itself takes about 15 minutes, but in the initial game, we run workshops that could be anywhere from like an hour to half a day to a full day. You're going to get a lot of insights throughout those sessions that you can then choose to continue.
0: That's super cool. So basically what you're offering is almost the gift of perspective, of introspection, (laughs) um, but manifested externally, which I think is really, Mm. really exciting. This might sound stupid, but why is empathy important?
1: Not stupid at all. We like to say empathy is the foundation of learning. And the other thing I would say is if your listeners read like the Harvard Business Review, they're fans of Slack or Microsoft, all of these thought leaders. So Satya Nadella, who's the former CEO of Microsoft, has written a whole book on how he's reinventing Microsoft with empathy. Mr. Butterfield, who's the founder of Slack, has talked about empathy being this core skill. I think the reason why empathy right now is getting this moment is because it touches all elements of learning, as well as all elements of creativity and invention. Empathy is the imaginative act of gaining somebody else's perspective. So empathy is not agreement. Empathy is not just be really nice. And Brene Brown actually speaks really beautifully to the difference between empathy and sympathy. But empathy is, is an action. Empathy is the ability to put yourself into perspectives that aren't your own. But also when you talk about the design process and the creative process, empathy is the ability to anticipate multiple perspectives around a certain problem. And so when we talk about things like creativity, collaboration, social and emotional learning, everything starts with empathy because empathy is understanding. When it comes to empathy, it can be so messy and so tricky to fully grasp or wrap your head around that it's kind of an underlying surface. Empathy in mathematics, empathy in science, like empathy in STEM, it's all about the really creative act of imagination and thinking about problems and challenges and things from very different angles. If you talk to anyone in the design thinking community, it starts with empathy. It starts with understanding.
0: I love the connection between empathy, creativity, and perspective. And I mean, it's sort of that whole trend going on right now that we need diversity in the world so that we can see things from different perspectives and dissipate problems. And so what you're offering is a chance to work that muscle at Mm -hmm. the same time. When we go to the foundation of toys, what are some studies that have been done that talk about what makes a toy effective?
1: I'm actually really excited to share this. So I call the company 21 Toys, and I get a lot of pushback. On calling it 21 toys, the second that any usually adults experience it, they're like, no, this is an innovative communication tool. And I'm like, if I called it an innovative communication tool on the box, this, it's saying nothing. <laughs> it's not making a case or a point. People get really offended sometimes by the word toy, which is why it's really important for me to keep the word toys. <laughs> toys are thought of as frivolous, something that you spend $10 maybe on that, you know, lasts for like one or two weeks. So when I started the journey of looking into just toys as a tool for education, I stumbled upon this German philosopher, Friedrich Froebel, who is the inventor of kindergarten. And a lot of people don't know this, but he not only invented kindergarten, he did it with a series of toys that he called gifts. And they were considered the first ever educational tools that later influenced these incredible creative thinkers like Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, Buckminster Fuller, who's the, the grandfather of industrial design. If anyone knows about Montessori schools, Marie Montessori's for verbal educated. They're really simple shapes. They are cut out triangles. And then one of the gifts is like a cube on a string. And then you turn it to just watch the, the change of the motion. And so there are things that can seem not serious and not, like formal education, but over and over again, so many different creative geniuses in our history have said that those choice influenced the way that they interacted with the world and the way that they saw things. And so when you look at like the role of toys, I would probably reframe that as like, what's the role of play and what's the role of creativity? I'll share one more creative genius, which is in the early 90s, NASA was having a really big HR issue. They were struggling with hiring creative engineers and rocket scientists. So they could find rocket science and engineers, but they couldn't quite understand how to find ones that were creative. Then they realized they actually knew very little about creativity. And so they enlisted these two scientists to study what they would later call creative genius. The way they did that is that they took participants through a series of tests to test their ability to do divergent thinking when we talk about toys for me that's talking about playing creativity it's it's about multiple perspectives it's about divergent thinking what ended up happening is they decided to run the study with 1600 four and five year olds so pretty much kindergarten students and tested them on their creative genius and what they found is that 98% of the 1600 four and five year olds were considered creative geniuses they followed this group throughout their high school years and into their 20s There's a TED talk on the full study, but I'll tell you the punchline, which is (laughs) very depressing. They followed them for 21 years. So they would check in on them every five years to see what percentage of them continued to be creative geniuses. By the time the cohort was 25, so 21 years later, less than 2% were still considered creative geniuses. And so it was a really fascinating study that really further showed the removal of play from education and from the things that we value and the things that we focus on immediately drastically reduces our ability for creativity. It's a really powerful study. We can all experience what happens when we're in a playful mindset. So you don't necessarily need a physical toy to do that, but we are far more open to new ideas. We are far more playful. We are less committed to one way of things being. And I think as a designer, physical toys that act as a catalyst for that conversation like hey you can stop working or you can be in a playful mindset is really key and i I think that's what toys and play really inspire
0: yeah that's wonderful i mean what you just described is power of divergent thinking is the importance of developing almost like t-shaped skills right yes you can have a lot of depth in one area but you also want to make sure you have this broader range of knowledge so that you can draw from associated experiences to let you see the same thing in a different way. And I think the beauty of what your toy is, is that it's actually interactive. And so there's like a community reinforcement component of it. It's not just about you and the way you see the world, but it's about you and how you communicate that with someone else and how together you can see the world in a different way, which I think is like the foundation of basically creative problem solving for us all to move forward together. I'm curious to to talk through like your design process. Yes, you have all these principles, but like from taking that principle and actually making it into something, there seems to be a very big gap there. You know, why don't you take me through like how you go about taking an abstract notion and giving it physical form?
1: So I designed it in university and I can kind of walk you through how I got to the end result, which was the empathy toy. But I just last year finished designing our second toy, which is a toy that teaches failure. So the failure toy. And that was my first moment of going, wait, what is my design process? So I was able to like (laughs) break it down. When I designed the empathy toy, it was very much based on design thinking, just because that's how in your thesis year of industrial design, you go through the four stages. So you go through empathic observation, which is making sure not that you're finding the right solution. You're trying to find the right problem. So the brief that was given to me was to design a navigational aid for the visually impaired. So my joke is that the school kind of assumed I'd be making like a Blackberry with really big buttons or like a walking stick that would make lots of like auditory signals. But what ended up happening, and this is through with in collaboration with the CNIB, so the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, I started talking to people who were born with or developed later in life visual impairment. And then I also talked to their friends and family. And that was so instrumental in getting a better understanding of the different challenges and the different opportunities. So what I discovered through speaking to them, and then also meeting with orientation and mobility trainers, is that when it comes to navigation, there are these foundational questions that someone would go through, which start with, where am I? Where am I going? How do I get there? So I I actually connected with this girl, Emily, who's in fourth grade. She had to take time out of school to do this orientation mobility training on her own. I then discovered that on average, if any kid is in like a a mainstream school, they're going to miss about 30% of class time. There's a lot of classes that they can't take with other students, which starts to create a social and emotional gap between the visually impaired and the sighted community and so that led me to then say, what if my brief was to design a game where Emily was able to practice, where am I, where am I going, how do I get there, but she can play it with her sighted classmates. So they're both developing language around navigation, but they're also developing, for lack of better words, empathy, empathy and creative dialogue. So that took me a while to get there. And then the process of turning it from it's a game, what kind of a game to puzzle, lots of sketching, lots of talking. I have. Huge sketchbooks that I make on my own. But I was embarrassed about it for a number of years. And I think just as a professional now, I realize that's my process and that's a lot of people's processes. My sketchbook is filled with very few sketches, it is filled with mind maps, it is filled with conversations, it's filled with discussion. And a lot of my creative process is talking to a million people and interrogating them and asking them a million questions about their profession or about, with empathy specifically, I asked very specific questions and other things I just observed. I took a lot of notes and then a big part of my creative process was stepping away from it and actually taking a break. I came up with the idea of it being an abstract puzzle in a nap, (laughs) in a panic nap, the day before our review to a lot of creatives and inventors. Collaboration is so important. And of course, I'm in the business of empathy. So taking on multiple perspectives is important. But at the same time, not talking to anyone, closing all the doors in your room, removing all distractions, and just sitting with your own thoughts, and even beyond that, being really nice to yourself is part of the creative process. The failure toy took me three years to design. A, because it's just like, I don't recommend it to anyone. Designing a failure toy is like, <laughs> it's so scary and so overwhelming. But one of my biggest blocks was that I had overly talked to too many people. My brain was filled with too many words and thoughts and ideas that weren't mine. And so while that's such an important part of the process, I had preferenced that too much at the beginning. And I had ignored the value of just sitting with my own thoughts and not judging all of the different directions I let my brain go into. And so, yeah, my biggest lesson in my creative process was to just sit alone with my own thoughts, let that marinate and simmer. The second I had a spark of, of, uh, inspiration. So with the failure to, I had this moment of like, it's triangles, it's triangles on a wheel. (laughs) And the second that I started to feel like, I think I've got it when I had the framework and the elements where I was like, okay, I think it's a game about balance. And then these are the pieces of how they interact. Then I was incredibly ready To put it into a million people's hands and get all their feedback and hear all the ways why it sucks or all the ways why it's great. But I didn't trust my process in that instance. And so that's a lesson I'm going to probably have to keep relearning, which is when to look for feedback and when to stop looking for feedback.
0: It's funny because I think that's something that's kind of been hammered into us that we need to be productive. We need to like iterate and test and listen and prototype. And it's this like constant cycle of doing. I was part of a community group and one person brought up this amazing story of how in order to make bread, you have four ingredients, right? There's like water, yeast, salt, and flour. That's all you need. But just because you have these four ingredients and you put them together doesn't mean you have bread, you need time. And if you don't give it the time and space to do its own thing, you might actually screw it up and you won't have any bread. And so hearing you talk about this just brings that to light. The importance of space and time is an ingredient of the entire process. So something that also comes down to a form of giving yourself the space to think and to explore and to be curious, which is the foundations of creativity too. I want to talk about a couple of the case studies that you might have when it comes to how empathy and failure and play can actually make a difference. I feel like there might be a little bit of a disconnect here. Maybe people just think it's a leadership tool or they just think it's a better human thing. But I think you've experienced how bringing people closer together can make a fundamental difference in people's lives. And do you think you could share a couple of those stories?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the road for me to start 21 toys. There was a gap between when I, I designed the empty toy in my thesis year. It ended up putting a pretty prestigious design award at the end of that year. And so right off the bat, I did what most designers would do, which is I'm going to find a business to start this. And then the good news is nobody was interested in starting an empty toy business, especially one which I later decided where would this empathy toy live? Like, where do I think it can create a significant impact and difference? And I was really, really inspired by this TED Talk by Sirkin Robinson called Do Schools Kill Creativity, which kind of led me down this path. So I was like screaming at my computer. I was like, they do. <laughs> that was my experience, 100%. So that talk plus just years, like just sitting with this empathy toy, not quite knowing what to do with it and feeling like there was something there. That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to start a toy company, but it's not just going to be about this empathy toy. I want to design an entire line. I want to design an entire category of toys. So I knew the failure toy. I'm working on an improv toy right now, but like I have the idea of what the next series of toys are. But the first question that I asked myself when I started the business was, does a school even want this? I genuinely think that toys can make a huge difference in schools because I went through the education system, but I'm not a teacher. And I'm also not a parent. So there's a lot of things that I didn't know. The way that I built the company a few years later was I thought, okay, I'm going to get some prototypes made. I'm going to start writing on this blog post about, you know, my perception of the lack of these skills in schools and just sharing other thought leadership. And then I essentially, um, I didn't break into education conferences. I like volunteered at them. I, I volunteered some, maybe one or two I snuck into. But what I would do is I would take my prototypes and I would leave them on a table and then I would leave the room. And then I would see this swarm of teachers that would walk up to this toy and say like, what is this? Who left this? And then I'd come back in the room and be like, oh, I forgot that. Sorry. And then that's how I'd start a discussion. And so <laughs> it validated right off the bat that there was a huge amount of interest in it. I even now... When I travel, when like if I'm at an airport, I usually don't pack the toys. I'll usually hold them because I've experienced just so many times, teachers especially chase me at the airport to find out, where did you get that toy? It was really powerful. So that was my first inkling of, okay, there seems to be a need here and an interest. Thanks to actually one of the education conferences that I left a toy at, a school contacted me and said, we would like to put in an order. And so with no investors, completely bootstrapped, I had a $1,200 artist grant that I'd spent on prototypes and a website. They put in their first order, which was large enough for me to pay for a first mini mass production run. I had a pretty good idea that schools and teachers wanted this, but then I devoted the next year to saying, okay, it looks like there's interest and it's being purchased, but is it creating an actual impact? After that order, I was able to get a few award loans and I brought on... A few contractors and one of them, who's now our director of training and facilitation, Ryan, he came with me and we met with those schools. And we said, okay, you got the toys. Are you actually using them? And what we found out was they weren't just using them in guidance counseling or for conflict resolution. The French teacher was borrowing it to talk about empathy and language. The business teacher was borrowing it to talk about the role of empathy in business. And then the biggest thing that we discovered is When we came in to demo the toy with teachers, halfway through the demo, it wasn't a demo. (laughs) It was a professional development workshop. So we were talking to the teachers about the role of empathy in their work. And so that's the very, very high level immediate kind of feedback that we got that there is impact here. It is being used, but what does actual impact look like? And we didn't have that answer for at least the first two or three years. So we could see anecdotally right off the bat language and conversations were being sparked. And there was a lot of like excitement about the topic of empathy. And teachers were saying, it would take me three months to teach. I can teach in a 20-minute lesson or activity with this toy. So we could tell that it set the stage for their expertise. It brought the lessons they were trying to teach to life. So it was kind of like that glue In our first year or second year, we went into mass production, so we did that through a Kickstarter campaign, which is how we ended up in, over the course of a month, 35 countries. I saw that there was not just a need for this locally, but there was a lot of excitement about it.
0: So one of the things that I really love about Ilana's story is how creative she is in bringing her vision to life. And I think that the reason for that creativity was actually the fact that empathy in and of itself didn't present a business model. There was no immediate apparent way on how she could take this very abstract notion and generate revenue from it. And so she had to kind of prototype and test and experiment and trick her way into different things in order to get people to even give her a chance. And I think there's maybe a lesson there that all of us can take away. This idea that if you want to get something done, you don't need to wait for permission. Sometimes you might just need to play. Now, the reason I decided to have this little break is because I wanted to point to the one talk that really inspired Alana into this direction. And I've actually heard this talk in the past, but I hadn't heard it in a while. And it was such a pleasure to dive back in. It's a talk by Sir Ken Robinson that he did at TED in 2006. So it's been quite a while, but listen to the words that he had to say then and how relevant they still are today.
2: I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology, one in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we strip mine the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk, who said, if, you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth... Uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are, and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. Thank you very much. So in
0: many ways, I guess this is exactly what Ilana is trying to celebrate with her work, to give people the gift of human imagination, of human collaboration, of what makes us beautiful and unique. And so if you wanna hear the entire talk by Sir Ken Robinson, make sure to Google, do schools kill creativity? And you'll find it right away. After all, in the business world, everyone is always looking for proof. And if you don't have a really good answer when people ask you why they need your product, it makes the selling almost impossible, no matter how much you believe in the value of what you have to bring. This is a story that she had ready for me.
1: There was one school in particular from Winnipeg, Manitoba, who their guidance counselor got the toys and she started using them with a certain classroom. And after a year of that, she connected with the vice principal and the principal, and they discussed, this is really powerful for this one class, but we think that there's a a much bigger opportunity for us. What if we put the toys into the hands of the students? And so they developed this program called the 21 Leaders and they took a cohort of grade eight to about 11 students. They gave them the toys and said, we're going to help you and have you run workshops on empathy with your peers, with your classmates, with your friends and family and teachers. And so conversations that were never happening before started to happen in the schools, with the staff, but also at home. But this school in particular, it's not an easy school. There's regular visits by the police. A lot of the student body is dealing with a lot of stresses from home as well as in the classroom. So this is a school with a lot of conflicts specifically around bullying and racism. And what we didn't know was that once the program started, that the school was tracking over the course of two years, how many times the students were being sent to the office specifically around conflict related to bullying and, and racism. And after two years of running workshops with the amphitheater that's student led, they found that there was an 85% reduction. In that conflict. And we only found out about that because the mayor of Winnipeg gave us a call to invite us to receive an honor as well as with the students for the work that the 21 leaders in the empathy toy did to help reduce that. So I think that the toy, just like any tool, it can be taken as just an awareness piece, something that you play once for 15 minutes, but it can also be embedded not only into high school leadership programs, but at the exact same time that this was happening at the high school. We were running multiple workshops with one of the largest banks in Canada. And when they heard about the 21 Leaders Program, they had a similar question. What if you trained and certified a group of our leaders to then run the workshops instead of us coming in and running them? What if we ran them and then we're able to further embed them into our leadership programming? We're now in like the third year of a multi-year partnership with one of the largest banks So We've reached about 6,000 of their employees. And when I say we, it's not us. (laughs) It's their cohort of facilitators and trainers that have embedded our toys into their programming. And so the idea that empathy and business and banking were connected was not obvious, but those are the kinds of insights that we've seen just by putting the toys into the hands of not just educators, but leaders and facilitators. A toy or a tool like this um, can be played once. And it can really build that muscle and to create really long lasting impact and change. It does need to be not just embedded into a framework that is unique to that organization and to that school, but the leadership as well as, for example, with the school, the student body, they need to believe in it as well. And so it was really amazing just to see how giving a tool can elevate the conversation and create a pretty substantial impact.
0: I love that you have this like really powerful case study that came out that you weren't even trying to measure that was almost delivered to you um, because it, it had been so effective that they wanted to tell you about it. When I think to like art and creativity and trying to measure the impact of the art that I do, and if I can't measure the impact, then I can't sell the impact, and there's no market for it. Are you planning on actually implementing more ways to track the impact of what you're doing? Is that something that you guys are actively pursuing? How do you even sell something that is so amorphous?
1: So there's kind of like two voices in my head. There's the business community, where it's just like, move fast and break things. That's not how we want to operate. (laughs) But then if I look to the social sector, most of it was charities, not-for-profits, and this idea of you need to have a really robust pilot. Years of A-B testing and all of these things. And I wasn't interested in either. I was just interested in approaching it like a designer, which was, I'm going to make things, see how people interact with them. And then if it appears that it is providing a positive experience (laughs) that we can build on, let's keep exploring that. I was shocked at, in the first few years and still now, how many professors and students email us daily asking to do a study on the toy. And we'd be more than happy to support that. We can get some toys in, we can put them into these different environments But so far, every study that's come out has said like, oh, we can't really measure empathy. (laughs) And I was like, okay, cool. I don't think that's true. I have a feeling that the way that it's even being tested, that needs to be really creative. And that needs to be really thoughtful. Right now, when I put the toys into someone's hands, I know immediately the impact and the awareness that that brings out. And I see it in people's faces. We run workshops all over the world. And especially when you're doing like corporate workshops, there's always going to be a room of 50 people, at least five who are like, why am I doing an empathy workshop? I'm being sent here as punishment. (laughs) Like we had one of our facilitators even on the elevator up to one of the workshops was standing next to a participant who didn't know who he was. And he was talking like, yeah, we got to do this empathy thing. (laughs) Not everyone's going to be like, hooray, an empathy workshop. It's usually that person that 30 minutes into the workshop stands up and declares, I didn't get this, but now I really get it. And this is the most important thing at our business and our company. We've had the CEO of an organization. We've had leaders who were really pessimistic going into it then take over our facilitation to tell us how important this is. And so I've just seen that so many times, like watching a movie and changing your mindset and opening you up to a new way of thinking or to an insight you didn't have before. We see those in action. Long-term sustained change is something I would absolutely love to test and to see, but it is not a game that I want to play right now because I'm much more interested in getting this into more hands of creative thinkers and teachers and coaches. And they're going to eventually show us how we can possibly track this and how we can possibly get a sense of the long-term impact and power of this toy. I am under the impression that the toy facilitates conversations that otherwise aren't happening, but it doesn't exist as a standalone. It needs to be done in collaboration with larger fundamental shifts and changes. So yes, I I think if there's like a magic way to measure the increase in empathy and then for the failure toy, increase in growth mindset and resilience, that would be great. But I think that can serve as a huge distraction and it can also impact our own creative confidence on what we know to be true, which is that the toys have a huge amount of impact. We've so far been able to finance the toy through not just direct sales and pre-sales, but we've won about 17 awards to date around creativity and innovation. And we have one of the most enthusiastic communities I've ever experienced. If we think about today with COVID hitting, we're for the first time running our workshops now online. And we are in real time seeing the very real impact of having a space to talk about what's going on in the world and the need for empathy right now.
0: It almost sounds like because you're seeing the effectiveness firsthand, it's a want, it's not a need. And that's such a great place to be. I love that being selective to find your partners and you're protecting your creative confidence, which is something super valuable and super important that we should all do. Let's end this on one last thing is if you could ask everyone to do one thing, what would you ask the world to do?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) We try as much as we can to live our values. I started 21 Tories not because I'm an expert I'm not like the world's most empathic and resilient person. It's been a, a learning process for me as well. There's a huge role that play and creativity and social and emotional skills have to make us not just better co-workers, but it makes us better partners. It makes us better siblings. It makes us better friends. Something I feel really passionately about is encouraging more designers to become entrepreneurs. When you look at so many of the very complex challenges that we have right now in the world, we need more creatives and we need more people that have human centered design at the core of their thinking and their creation process. I really want to encourage them to get into entrepreneurship because I didn't think I was allowed to be an entrepreneur. I didn't think I was allowed to build a business like my my frame for a business person was Robin Williams and Hook in a suit on his phone missing his son's baseball game. I just thought that was business. (laughs) And so business doesn't have to be evil. Business can be a tool for good. I think right now we're reevaluating everything with COVID. And I think supporting organizations that are committed to not just profit, but they're committed to making the world a better place, to investing in their communities, to building products in a way that is ethical and working with other partners who share those same values, I think we can create such an incredible, positive change in the world. I want to see more designers at these startup events that I'm at. I want to see more creatives and designers there because I think we have been given this incredible gift of understanding creative complex problem solving and it doesn't have to result in a physical product. There's so many different ways that that can manifest into a service or a product or whatever it is. But yeah, I just, I want more designers at the table.
0: Thank you so much for that. If people want to learn more about what you're doing or they want to get a sneak peek of the empathy toy, where should they go? How should they follow you?
1: So I'm the only person with my name. So I-L-A-N-A-B-E-N-A-R-I. <laughs> you can find me on all social media platforms. And um, my company is Two One Toys. So it's, it's written out 21toys.com. But if you add 21toys, that's where you can find us on social media. Otherwise, if you forget all of that, you can just Google Empathy Toy and you'll find us.
0: Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. That was great.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there you have it, guys. That was Ilana Ben-Ari, the founder of 21toys. And if you found this talk at all interesting... I have some great news for you because there is a free online empathy toy workshop that I have actually done because I was just so curious after speaking with her that I just wanted to experience what it was like. And I have to say out of many of the different zoom experiences that I've had since lockdown, this was definitely one of the best ones. So if you have a moment, check it out at 21toys.com. That's 21, but written out in letters, not in numbers. For next week's episode, we have someone very special coming on board, and that is a scientist by the name of Michelle Thaler. And she's not just any scientist, she actually works for NASA and has some of the craziest adventure stories that I can't wait to share for you, along with some really unique perspectives on how science and creativity are actually not as different as we may think. I hope that you guys are enjoying the episode so far. Every single week, I put together a bunch of my favorite quotes and throw them up on the Impact Everywhere podcast Instagram channel. So if there's something there that you find interesting, be sure to share it out with your friends and family. Get the word out there. It really means the world to me. Thank you very much, guys. And I hope you stay inspired because impact is everywhere.